Hello and welcome to this vidcast, which, as suggested by the title, is about the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk. Let's start with a funny story. You maybe remember that in March 2021, Jack Dorsey sold as an NFT the first tweet for $2.9 million. An entrepreneur somewhere bought it. And today, the person says it's for sale. He started an auction and proposed a price of $48 million in April 2022. Now, it does not seem to be a fantastic success because it seems that he will get something around $30,000 plus for the tweet. Now, let's move to the serious part of the story. March 21, 2006, the first tweet. Jack Dorsey, with three other persons, is going to create Twitter. He's going to be the first CEO from 2006 to 2008. He's replaced by a co-founder, Evan Williams. A year later, Jack Dorsey creates Square, Square SQ, the ticker on the stock market. Now, Square is named Block for blockchain. And you remember I used two videos to talk about Square. One on Square itself and the other one on the BNPL, the split payment business after pay. In 2010, Dick Costolo replaces Evan Williams. In 2015, Jack Dorsey again replaces Dick Costolo. In 2021, Parag Agrawal will become the new CEO. So there is a little bit of volatility in terms of CEO. In the meantime, in 2013, the 7th of November, there will be an enthusiastic stock market IPO. The first trading day, the stock price will move from $26 per share, which is the price at which the shares are offered, to a closing price of $45. This represents a little bit more than 20 times the expected 2014 sales. It looks big, but if you remember some discussions we had a year ago about MongoDB, the same figure was 40. Snowflake, the company was listed for 55, then it moved to 120 years of sales. Now it is back to a modest 37 years. So 22, okay, it's about the metrics at that time. And at first, the Twitter IPO will very favorably compare with the IPO made by Facebook just a year before, which was an absolute catastrophe. But immediately, some people are going to say, oh, it's too expensive. The maximum should be $40 and so on and so forth. Now, what will happen to the stock price? 45 the first day for the closing, $16 at the beginning of 2016, $77 at the beginning of 2021, and $49 today. In the meantime, the Nasdaq is gradually up, smoothly up, and is down the last weeks and quarters for some reasons which we know. Now, at the end of the day, you understand that Twitter is an interesting story, but much more volatile than the market. Let's go back to a little bit of storytelling about Twitter. There are permanent discussions about the management style of the company and the quality of its capital allocation process. As an example, the acquisition of Tidal, owned by Jay-Z for $300 million, will be qualified as WTF. You know the meaning of the acronym. What happened the moment this acquisition is announced, the market capitalization is down by $7 billion. 
then it will go up, then we'll be down, and then we'll be up again. Now, the last weeks, Elon Musk announced that he bought 9.2% of the shares, and then he offered 54.2 dollars per share. We'll go back to this stock price. Quickly after the announcement, uh, there will be rumors about implementing the poison pill, which limits to 15% uh, their voting rights. But eventually, the board will give its agreement. Musk is going to be the winner, and he announced that he's going to take Twitter private. Now, today, the price is $49, when the offer was $54.2. What does it mean? Maybe some uncertainty about the financing, about the approval provided by the regulatory authorities. I'm going to discuss this first uncertainty, but before that, I would like to go through some financial now storytelling. If you look at the evolution of Twitter quarterly sales, you observe that from the very beginning to 2016, there is an outstanding growth. Then there will be some plateauing in the growth rate up to 2019, 2020, and then acceleration of growth again. Most of the revenues are advertising services. That's about commercial success and customer value creation. Now, what about commercial profit and return on sales? In the early days, the company is obviously generating losses. Then in 2012, 2013, the company, as a consequence of its commercial success, is going to break even in terms of adjusted EBITDA. Adjusted EBITDA is EBITDA without any exceptional events. Then there will be a gradual improvement in the EBITDA, which is going to plateau 2018, 2019. And there seems to be a kind of reduction in the commercial profitability the last quarters. If you ask Excel to draw a kind of interpolation of this evolution, you observe exactly the same story. Ninth growth, plateau, maximum, decline. Then it's interesting to split this whole period into four sub-periods. The first sub-period will go up to 2013. There's a fantastic commercial success, and this success drives the company towards EBITDA break-even. Second period, from 2013 to 2016, that grows, nice grows. The returns are going to be up. Return on sales is up. And in the meantime, you have the IPO, which in the early days is quite a success. Period three, from 2016 to 2019. You can observe that the sales growth is going to slow down. But the EBITDA as a percentage of revenue is gradually up. Now, the last period starting in 2019, sales are absolutely up by almost two-thirds, but the EBITDA is crashing down by more than 21%. And it's interesting to make a deep dive into this fourth period. If we want to understand why it went down, we have to look at cost item by cost item. First, cost of sales, evolution of the growth margin. The gross margin was negative. Then it went up to 60-70%. It stabilized at the end of period three at around 70%, which is quite traditional gross margin rate for this kind of company. And then it gradually went down by something like 10%. 
maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. The order of magnitude is minus 10%. This is about direct cost. Now let's have a look at indirect costs. First, R&D. R&D is not a cost, it's an investment. But R&D went up, obviously, from 2019 on. Not only in absolute terms, but relative to sales, by 8%. You remember that revenues were up by two-thirds. But R&D was doubling in the meantime from 200 to 400 million dollars. As a consequence, R&D to revenues is again up by 8%. It's not the case for sales and marketing expenses, which are quite stable throughout the periods, maybe a small decline, but around stability. In general, and administration expenses, G&A, you would anticipate economies of scale. You would anticipate that G&A costs are going up, but as a percentage to revenues, slightly down. It's not the case. It's up by 3%. So, as a matter of a wrap-up, item by item, what happened? Gross margin down by 10, R&D up by 8, GNA up by 3, and sales and marketing quite stable. This explains you the minus 21% around. Now, you understand that this last period is not quite favorable for the capacity, and you could anticipate that there might be a recovery in the return on sales, EBITDA, and EBIT sales. Now, let's move to financing the deal. Elon Musk proposed $54.2 per share. I recently read an article in a very serious journal, which is named Financial Times, which says, basically, this is an explicit reference to the marijuana culture. The FT is suggesting the reference to a UN report published in 2015. I read the report, which tries to estimate how many people on a regular basis consume marijuana in the world. And if you take the Americas, North and South, the sum is 54.2 million people. This is a reference to marijuana and the link between marijuana and financial economics. Now let's go back to 44 billion. You have to find the money. The first 25.5 billion is debt, out of which 12.5 billion are guaranteed by Tesla shares owned by Elon Musk. Musk is selling 9.6 million of his own shares for 8.5 billion. Well, he still owns 163 million shares, which represents 16% of Tesla, and Tesla is worth $900 billion. So it's still quite okay. But recently, we happen to know that 19 investors are all together putting $7 billion on the table. The major contributor is Larry Hellison Oracle for $1 billion, VY Capital, Alexander Tamas for $700 million, plus some others. Now, it seems to be okay in terms of financing. If we go back to the rationality for Elon Musk, it's difficult to assess. You know that Twitter represents something like 217 million accounts. Elon Musk himself has 84 million followers. And he's very often using Twitter as a way to express his own opinion. In 2018, he published a tweet which basically said, I'm considering taking Tesla private at 422, which is, by the way, much more than the current stock price at that time. Funding secured. Don't worry. Be happy. 
this will lead to some problems and legal issues with the Securities and Exchange Commission because this announcement is absolutely a manipulation of capital markets. It's just unacceptable. Now, if you try to figure out how much of his wealth it represents for Elon Musk to buy Twitter, it's about 10%, which is not, quote, that big. In a TED conference, Elon Musk recently said, I don't care about the economics at all. Well, this can be questioned. And he also says, I am a free speech absolutist. Now, it's very likely that the Tesla shareholders care about the economics and they are a little bit, quote, preoccupied by this acquisition. Because Elon Musk takes care of Tesla, but also SpaceX, which is supposedly driving people towards another planet, Hyperloop, the boring company, it's about tunnels, about high-speed trains, doesn't seem to be very successful, by the way, and so on and so forth. And now it's going to take some of his time to run Twitter. Isn't it going to be too much? Now, the consequence of the announcement, the Tesla stock price went down by 12%. It represents a drop in the market value of equity of the company by $125 billion. Now, I would like to spend some time discussing with you the valuation of Twitter, the financial economics. There are two very important parameters that you want to evaluate a company. The cost of capital and the capital expenditures. Cost of capital is very much about the beta, the systematic risk coefficient. I very often calculate 12 months and 36 months trailing betas. The 12 months beta is very often extremely volatile, which is a case for Twitter, and the 36 months is a little bit more stable. After a few years of listing, it's about 1, it goes down to 0.5, it goes up, and recently it stabilized at around a beta of 1. It sharply went down during the last weeks because of the announcement and the stabilization of the stock price, which is due to the announcement made by Elon Musk. So let's take a beta of 1. What about capital expenditures as a percentage to sales and revenues? It's between 10 and 20, with a kind of average about 15% of revenues, which is quite significant. Now we are going to use these two parameters to discount some cash flows. What is very interesting to calculate is the free cash flow, which in five years is going to justify the price of $44 billion, which is paid for the equity today. You remember the cost of capital. Cost of capital is weighted average cost of debt and equity. There is no debt. Or let's put it the other way around, more cash than debt. So the cost of capital is the cost of equity. Government bond rate, 3%, plus risk premium, 1% for the beta, 6% for the equity market risk premium. It's 9%. To evaluate a company, you need a growth rate. Now, I'm going to consider that 20%, which we observed during the last years, is going to keep on during the next years. There are big questions about that. First, competition, Instagram, TikTok, and some others. But there is also a big question mark about the advertisers. Because if Twitter is back to absolute free speech, some advertisers might get out, which is at the expense of the growth in the revenues. Let's take 20% as an assumption. Working capital requirements, just technical stuff. It's 8% of revenues, quite stable, no big deal. CapEx, 15%, which I described. Depreciation, there's a kind of lag behind the CapEx, so I will take 12%. Now we'll calculate the free cash flow, 
and from the free cash flow in 2026, will deduct the EBITDA. This needs some backward calculation. Today, as the company is cash rich and cash is exceeded financial debt by 3 billion, if the value of equity is 44, it means that the enterprise value is 44 minus 3, which is 41 billion. Let's take as an assumption to simplify the calculation that the free cash flow is going to be zero during the next five years. We need to calculate the terminal value in 2026. If you want to generate a return, which is 9%, the 41% has to be transformed into 41 multiplied by 1 plus 9% to the fifth power, which is 63 billion. Now, the terminal value in five years' time will be the free cash flow at that time, divided by the difference between work and long-term growth, classical, traditional calculation for cap and evaluation. Now, if we estimate that the growth rate might be an average of 3% in the long run, the terminal value will be the free cash flow at that time, divided by 9 minus 3, and it should be 63. It means that the free cash flow should be 63 multiplied by 9 minus 3, which is 6%, 3.8 billion. Let's move forward. If sales are up by 20% during the next five years, it means that the $5 billion will be transformed into $12.4 billion in five years' time. And you remember that the free cash flow is EBITDA net of tax plus tax savings on the depreciation minus what you consume in terms of financial resources, which is the change in working capital requirements and the capital expenditures. EBITDA, what we try to calculate, multiplied by 1 minus 25% corporate tax rate. Tax savings on depreciation because depreciation is a non-cash item which generates tax savings. Um, 12 tax savings on depreciation. You remember that depreciation is a non-cash item which saves taxes. Sales 12.4 multiplied by 12% of depreciation multiplied by 25% of tax. Minus change in working capital requirement. This is quite negligible. Growth rate would be 3% multiplied by the working capital requirement, which represents 8% of 12.4. This is not that big. If you make a mistake on the working capital requirements, that's no big deal. If you make a mistake on CapEx, that's much more significant because it's 15% of 12.4. It's not 3% of 8%. Now let's push the calculations for the free cash flow. Free cash flow is EBITDA multiplied by 1 minus 25%, which is 0.75. Tax savings on depreciation represent 0.37. Minus delta working capital requirements, spin-up 0.03. And CapEx 1.86, which is quite big. So in the end, we get EBITDA multiplied by 0.75 minus 1.52, which should be 3.8. You calculate the EBITDA 7.1. You confront EBITDA and sales and revenues, and you understand that at that time EBITDA should represent 57% of revenues. Now, if we make a wrap up on the financial economics of the deal, of course, I took plenty of assumptions, and you are absolutely legitimate if you contest all these assumptions. But take your own assumptions and recompute. It's an interesting exercise. If my assumptions are realistic. The EBITDA should be 57%. The high rate of EBITDA, which was observed, was 40%, and today it's about 20%. How can you get to 57%? 
Now, if the company is improving its gross margin with economies of scale or improvement in the quality of execution, maybe the gross margin, which was 70% at its maximum, could go up to 75%. And if you consider that the quality of execution could be improved and economies of scale could be generated by the company with better management of the operation, R&D might go down to 15%. You increase, of course, the R&D expenditures, but you reduce them as a percentage to revenues. Same story for sales and marketing, same story for general and admin, which could go down to 15 and 10% respectively. The EBIT would then represent 35% to revenues. From EBIT to EBITDA, you have to add two non-cash items. One is DA, obviously. You remember I took 12%. And the other one is a very well-known compensation, which is a stock-based compensation, when you pay people with stock options, with RSU, and so on and so forth, which represents about 12% at Twitter. Now you start from 35, and you add 12, and 12, and you get 59%. So if you consider that these figures are realistic on a financial economics point of view due to an improvement in the quality of execution, management, capital allocation processes, and so on and so forth, then there might be some ROI also in the rationality of Elon Musk. So it's not only about free speech, it's about return on investment. We'll be able to observe later how Twitter will be transformed by Elon Musk and the evolution of the accounting and financial metrics. I would like to conclude this vidcast with a great comment made by Jack Dorsey about Elon Musk. I trust his mission to extend the light of consciousness. Everything is said. No need to put any additional comment. Thank you very much.